0: Anyhow, the books. Are you seeing the books? Everything you would want to read is right here. Feel it. Feels good, right? Now smell it.
1: Nothing, nothing smells like that. I'm
2: sorry, excuse me.
0: Did I just see you smell that book?
1: Dear Reader, a Jane Eyre podcast. Brought to you by the Fire and Water Podcast Network.
3: Episode 4, Zombie Trek. Greetings and salutations to the fourth episode of Dear Reader, a limited series looking at the classic Jane Eyre by Charlotte Bronte through the lens of its varied and various interpretations. I'm your guide on this gamble through gothic romance, Stella. There won't be any continuity for this show, but I do suggest maybe starting with episode 1 if you've never read Jane Eyre, and then you can hop around to what interests you. This episode, I'm going to be looking at Star Trek and zombies. As I look at each of these interpretations, I will be first judging each of them on their own merits, because I feel like it would not be fair to those works to immediately dive into comparisons with Jane Eyre, especially if they are reimaginings or only refer to or pay homage To the source material. I also have a list of questions I call the Jane Eyre rubric that continues to change I think every time I come up with something or I visit a different adaptation and I will go through and of course the big question is at the end you know does this adaptation or interpretation have the spirit of Jane or the law of Jane. So first in this episode and perhaps easiest and (laughs) Shortest, I suppose. I'm going to be looking at Star Trek Voyager and how that may have used some Jane Eyre aspects in a few episodes. I will say that also on the Fire and Water Podcast Network, you should listen to Give Me That Star Trek Episode 3, Janeway Air with Siskoid and Jose. I defer to that episode for the Star Trek element and the side-by-side discussion with Jane Air. I'll of course, be talking about those scenes, and but I will only touch upon, I think, a little bit of the Star Trek situation. But that was a really good episode. It's funny because that's that episode is the reason why I even knew that Jane Eyre aspects existed. In Star Trek. I remember someone had mentioned to me to listen to that episode and I remember listening to it and that was years ago, probably potentially when it first came out and then I was scratching my head where that episode was and then I thought wait a minute was it on the fire and water podcast network and in fact it was and I re-listened to it recently and I would say it really holds up well but it's not like a lot of a lot has changed obviously but I yeah so I would say that definitely listen to that if you want more details into things So Star Trek Voyager is set in the 24th century when Earth is part of a united federation of planets. And it follows the adventures of the Starfleet vessel, the USS Voyager, as it attempts to return home to the Alpha Quadrant after being stranded in the Delta Quadrant on the far side of the Milky Way galaxy. And I'm going to be looking at three... Episodes in particular or three sections of episodes. *Cathexis* Season 1, Episode 13, which aired May 1st, 1995. An encounter with a peculiar nebula suddenly leaves Chakotay brain dead and unconscious. The crew is left with a mysterious but powerful force on board that can take over the minds of the crew members. Then in Learning Curve, which was season one, episode sixteen, aired May twenty second, nineteen ninety five, as Newix's cooking sickens Voyager itself, Tuvok runs the foremost problematic maquis malcontents wow through a starfleet style boot camp and then finally persistence of vision which is season two episode eight aired october 30th 1995 the voyager crew enters a new region of space and begins to see hallucinations the captain sees her holo novel characters come to life And I will say that originally I was only going to watch Persistence of Vision and I have probably the most notes on that because that's what was in the Wikipedia of adaptations of Jane Eyre. But by going back and listening to Gimme That Star Trek I was able to oh there are actually two other sections. I will also be citing from two articles. One of them is from Memory Alpha and then the other one is an article I read about the subtle feminism of Janeway's hollow novels. So I'll talk a bit about that and then uh, do a slight commentary on these scenes and then bring up maybe a couple things that you might not have noticed before. So these hollow novels, which... I guess I'll just begin with that. Janeway Lambda One is the hollow novel. It's an extension of the idea of audio novels, and Captain Janeway ends up. Well, she says that it's like a nice little easy pastime for her to like a stress relief to go into this. Originally, it was intended to be set in the ancient West. The captain would have been a pioneer woman. She would have had a husband and children. She would have spent some of her time coping with harsh conditions, uh, building a campfire, which I don't know why that would be a harsh condition, but that's what Memory Alpha says. But this idea was scrapped because Kate Mulgrew did not want to work with horses, and then the expenditure of each day's work on any episode that incorporated this Western hollow novel or hollow program be an additional $100,000. Even though the budget per episode was about $1.8 This hollow novel would have just been too much to add to that. Jerry Taylor, who is the writer I saw pop up when I was watching Persons of Vision, she was instrumental in developing this Hollow program and she said, quote, we realize that if we locked ourselves into this western program for the Hollow novel we probably would be saying over and over again, we can't afford that this week. We're going to have to do something else. Because it means going on locations, it means horses, it means wranglers, it means a lot of things that are complicated. We're also well into the time of year when the days are shorter. You don't get many pages shot when you go Outside. All in all, it seemed not a prudent decision. And that came from a vision of the future Star Trek Voyager, page 11. Of Janeway's interest in Holo novels, Jerry Taylor commented, quote, that hollow novels are something that she does, like I read adventure novels and thrillers, as a stress reliever. So these are like reading in the 24th century. You go and you actually play one of the characters. So it's the only place where she can forget about being a captain for a couple of hours and get into a completely different situation where she has a husband and she has children and she lives a life utterly unlike the one that she lives. It's more that kind of motivation than an intellectual curiosity about a Period of history. And this came from Captain's Log Supplemental, the unauthorized guide to the new trek voyages, page 158 to 159. And I will say, even though I'm about to read some stuff from the subtle feminism of Janeway's Hollow novel, that the fact that they originally wanted her to have a wife and children and be a pioneer woman almost I feel like detracts from the potential feminism that there is having a woman be a captain of this spacecraft. I feel like it almost makes it safe for audiences and makes it more acceptable that if you're feeling a bit uncomfortable that this woman is in charge, well, at least you'll have these scenes where she's falling in line with the social order and she, you know, She's got her husband and her children, and she's got to do domestic activities. So I do question that a bit. And then the thought that Taylor, as Taylor said, because of the budget that they probably would have cut this short, it ended up happening anyways, that there are only three episodes that include this hollow novel, and we have no idea what goes on, and she really deletes everything, given the fact of persistence of vision and and deleting those characters, that It was like a self-fulfilling prophecy that they thought it was going to get cut short with the Western, and it actually did get cut short. So that is a bit of an unfortunate situation. Now, Memory Alpha says that it's a mashup. This whole novel that she's experiencing or reading or acting in is a mashup of Jane Eyre, of course. Henry James, The Turn of the Screw. And it also says Rebecca, though I would say that this doesn't count because Rebecca is based off of Jane Eyre, so it's a bit redundant to say that. Janeway Lambda One was the actual computer file name for her favorite Hollow novel but the actual title of the novel was unknown so As I said, I read this article online called The Subtle Feminism of Janeway's Hollow Novel by Lauren Busser, and I wanted to read from this because I thought that this was rather interesting. So Kate Mulgrew was cast in the role of Captain Janeway at the 11th hour and came into a situation where there was no rule book. Plus, there was some rebuff from fans of the notion of the next Star Trek series being helmed by a woman. Mm -hmm. Yet, co-executive producers Jerry Taylor, Michael Pillar, and Rick Berman push forward with the idea and Mulgrew was hopeful a female captain would be just what the Star Trek universe needed quote women have an emotional accessibility that our culture not only accepts but embraces we have a tactility a compassion a maternity and all these things can be revealed within the character of a very authoritative person end quote this came from a an interview with Entertainment Weekly in 95 with Mulgrew her read of Captain Janeway from the early days of filming draws a striking similarity to her hollow novel because the scary Victorian horror story falls into the genre of Gothic fiction. Gothic fiction in turn has a history of stubborn, trailblazing women who face the odds and win. At first glance, Janeway doesn't quite fit the mold. A 1977 study in the Pacific Sociological Review attempts to break down the archetype's specific characteristics. They found that a typical Gothic heroine is often under the age of 20 nine presents as an impoverished gentlewoman is typically single and attractive and the crux of her story does not usually revolve around the pursuit of a man however Janeway is the driving force of the series her ship is the castle and the mystery she has to unlock is how to get her crew home you can even see the search for wormholes as looking for secret passages so the captain I think both subverts the archetype within gothic horror as well as leans into it with sort of a wink and a nudge Okay, so let us look at some of these scenes here. So what I'm going to do is actually play. I found a mashup on YouTube of all of these scenes. You could probably easily find it. And I'll just do a commentary over it. Three, two, one, play. So right off the bat, this quote-unquote Jane doesn't take any gruff and is sarcastic. Been with Lord for this housekeeper is rather forceful, though, more forceful than we would expect from Mrs. Fairfax. Perhaps she feels threatened by another female in the house. I don't know. Davenport doesn't take it, though. A bit more forceful than I think we're used to with a Jane Eyre character. It comes, I think, with age and experience, probably, and also what she's receiving. So she's just giving back what she is receiving from Templeton. Don't make an enemy of me. This is already starting off so contentiously. room for the both of us as if two women can't live together I think <laughs> Templeton concedes victory here and even Davenport she dabs at her lips with her napkin as if like yeah I've won and that was easy Who? I don't know how this would have lasted much longer with these two women I like the garb. I like that she, Davenport, wears red, which I think reflects what Jane Weir, Janeway is wearing in real life, quote-unquote. I like her hairstyle with the bun. And even in some of the episodes, the captain wears a bun. Though I did read on IMDb on one of the episode trivias that maybe it was about the Visions one that it was hard to manage – that hairstyle, so it was only used for a couple episodes, but it works here. And now we have this sense of foreboding. We've got the storm. She had to close the window. She's looking up. There's the mistress of the house portrait looking down and spooked right off the bat by Lord Burley. First time meeting in a domestic setting rather than outdoors. And there's not much of an introduction because he just gets straight to the point, as he says. It's interesting that his wife, quote-unquote, dying makes him worse, whereas you'd think maybe he'd be a bit better, depending on what the wife was like. He's very open to Davenport here, really lays out the situation, maybe shows some heart just that, you know, the kids suffered. I don't know why she's really needed as a female presence, given we've there was a maid and Templeton was there. He also lays out the personalities of the the two children, too, and that one of them really misses her mother. (gasps) Don't go to the fourth floor. And then we switch scenes here. Henry and Beatrice. Henry is Thomas Decker. My lord and my lady. I mean, they're setting those ground rules for the governess. Seems like it's, they're really going to put her through the, the ringer. Some Latin here. I don't like his pronunciation of the properamus but that is okay. Let's not rush into anything is what he is saying when she says, you know, I'll be your friend. Her patience wears thin rather quickly. That's not necessarily a Jane uh, personality quirk or flaw. I think that's definitely a Captain Janeway character. Trait or flaw? Nothing. Not even painting or work. I just made my
4: first sound. I
5: finished
4: it yesterday. Did you? Oh, I'd love to see it sometime. I don't have it anymore. I gave it
3: to Mother Beatrice. Mm. So Beatrice given things to her song mother, song even though the mother is quote unquote dead? Henry's not liking it. This is, I think, where part of uh, turn of the screw comes into play, that they could be gaslighting their governess. Which goes into play of what, you know, the Ingrams said that, oh, Ingrams used to do to their governess so we've switched scenes this is the final time that we see this hollow novel and it actually skipped because right when she pops into it Burley grabs her and gives her (laughs) a big old smooch which was it was a lot i will say that this lord Burley character is he i don't find him attractive at all not handsome not attractive i'm not sure if he if that best fits the rochester profile or not These kids certainly seem entitled. She won't eat the cucumber sandwiches because she doesn't like how Cook cuts them. Uh, That Decker child's got a dark look about him, Henry. Now there's some crazy stuff going on. Confusion, Beatrice doesn't play the piano. Lindsay Hahn, I couldn't remember her name. She would go on to be in The Color of Friendship, which was a Disney Channel original film about the apartheid, or taking place during the apartheid, I think, in I think South America's Africa. <gasps> oh, breaking that, breaking that cup. Sorry. Things are starting it's to fall apart. It's cup. Cup. It doesn't matter. It's Man, Henry, I think, would grow up to be <laughs> a brooding or an abusive person. He just seems so angry and he might lash out at anyone. Wow. She wants to be with the children, calm them down. Lord Burley wants her there. What is happening? Yeah, you question Davenport. You question. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm.
1: See, she's getting all stressed out at this.
3: And now we're just seeing some of the, I suppose we call them gaslighting scenes here. Oh, she gets, she sees Beatrice in the hall, And then Templeton begins attacking her with, with, uh, it looks like a butter knife, but a bit more dangerous. The way she acts almost makes it seem like she's got, (laughs) I don't know. She wants to be the lady of the house. Does she love Burley? Who knows? There's a struggle. Oh, your touch. your touch. When 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 were they touching before that kiss? Ooh. people have stopped you and said this many times and I agree well there you have it now I will say that all of the episodes linked with this hollow novel have some major gaslighting going on in the quote-unquote real world outside of the novel which I found pretty interesting given the the idea that (laughs) there might be some inadvertent gaslighting going on within Jane Eyre just that you're told not to believe what you may be seeing or thinking and and people are hiding things and everything like that so you have people being suspicious of others and whether they are inhabited by an alien which using that term alien seems like a xenophobic term given the fact that the Voyager crew would actually be the aliens and also I noticed throughout these three episodes that There seems to be some racism or xenophobia going on with who is a yellow or a red clad person. I don't know if I'd have to watch the whole thing and really watch. But from those three episodes, it seems like more human people and more white people are red clad than yellow clad. But you should. You should check that out on yourself and I might be wrong because I just watched three episodes. Then the second episode, you've got a crew being quote unquote broken in, as it were, really put through the ringer and you could almost think of it as hazing, though it's just like intense training, but... You know, there are some mind games going on there, and then with the third one, you've got a Bothan, which let's not be confused by the Bothans who died getting the plans for the Death Star. They are telepathically reading people's desires and making them manifest. And I have to say that that episode, which was the originally the only episode that I was planning on watching, there's a lot of wackadoodle stuff that goes on in there, especially when one of the people I can't even remember her name. I've not watched Voyager. This is my only experience with Voyager but reads her mind that she's got a crush on I think it was Chakotay and then all of a sudden within this crisis they start making out and getting it on and I thought this is neither the time nor the place to be doing that but it was very interesting just seeing that connection with all of them in regards to that final episode that has the hollow novel I bristled a bit I think and and again you know there is While Busser in that article would would show that there's some feminism there in the hollow novel overall I think there seems to be a struggle with feminism in this show or how to make our captain strong but not uncomfortably strong that male viewers or maybe the men on the ship would be affronted by how she's acting but it just seemed like there was a lot of uh, patronizing of the, the captain telling her to rest and eat specifically from the doctor right and and if she gets upset which i think she had every right to do because these two people had a job to do in order to have i think the doctor and his hologram pop up and they're very tiny if they have a job to do and they fail to do that they fail to do their duty and so i think she has a right to be upset with them but would they have been d- doing this coddling almost if the man was the captain so that just seemed really weird like have you eaten today so bizarre I mentioned Lindsay Hahn that she plays Beatrice she would go on to star in the color of friendship on Disney and Thomas Decker he would actually be John Connor in the Sarah Connor Chronicles and I talked about his dark look just like a rock star away but he totally still has that dark look about him now and the big thing for me <laughs> is that this Hall novel is considered relaxing. She says it, Captain says it, and then Jerry Taylor said that as well. And I personally don't consider Jane Eyre to be a relaxing novel to live inside and that whole thing. Like she's even getting stressed out the final scenes because, you know, why why can't I go to the fourth floor? Why don't other people know that Beatrice plays the piano? Why does she keep saying her mother's alive? All that like that's stressful. So I don't know why she would be relaxed doing that. Kess is someone who is an interesting character and in two of the three she seemed to be a pretty big part I think given her mental abilities I'm not sure what species she was but she seemed to be like a Spock type character because I think she said that the actual Spock type character is training her so there you go and she says something interesting well she acts as a mirror and that's a way that she's able to almost get rid of some of these characters and that are popping up out of the holo novel and then also she's got like these acid boils on her face and she's able to save herself by using herself as a mirror and it reminded me of a quote from a book that I recently read the book is called The Nest by Cynthia Depree Sweeney, and you can look up what that is about. But at one point, this is a quote that comes from a character. Everyone's always on the hunt for a mirror. It's basic psychology. You want to see yourself reflected in others. Others, your sister, your parents, they want to look at you and see themselves. They want you to be a flattering reflection of them and vice versa. It's normal. I suppose it's really normal if you're a twin, but being somebody else's mirror that is not your job. And I I liked that quote. That was actually a quote that I reread a couple times when I was reading that novel and I thought this is almost physically manifested right here with Kez acting as a mirror and what that potentially means and to people's detriment on the ship and, and and able to protect herself but then I thought about Jane Eyre in terms of that quote as well is Jane Eyre acting as a mirror to Edward Rochester and is that something that she should not be doing and I think potentially yes that Rochester wants Jane to be A mirror to himself he wants to and he enjoys right he enjoys looking at how Jane reacts to him seeing himself through her eyes as as someone who is whole and is not emotionally wrecked and doesn't have that sordid history and the traumatic history that he definitely has and I wondered you know that's almost bad right to fall in love with someone he wants to keep her in order to still have this positive reflection and see it see how he wants to be and I think it does change because Well, maybe it doesn't because even when he's quote unquote maimed at the end, I think looking at her, looking back at him, he still sees himself, I think, positively, which is also just Jane. But if you think about that quote and think about Jane Eyre, I think you do perhaps start to see that, oh, is that an unhealthy situation right there? Because Jane, I mean, Jane does not need to be Rochester's mirror and to a certain extent, I think especially you know after his son is born I think that he is able to by leaps and bounds become the reflection that he wanted to be I think it just takes some time but initially Jane is certainly acting as that mirror so this thank you Voyager for making me think about all that and the nest as well I don't think I ever would have considered any of those thoughts while watching this Oh, I was about to sign off on this episode, but I actually have to go through my rubric of Jane, right? So, does it have the spirit of the book with its tone, its themes, is it gothic, etc.? For what will we we see? I think yes, uh, especially with the the gothic suspenseful elements. We don't Uh, get to see too much of I think the tone is probably spot on thematically I'm not sure it's it's too too difficult to say given what snapshots we saw is Jane relatable I don't know if I find her as relatable necessarily as I and I'm saying right the stand-in so quote-unquote Jane but is Davenport relatable to me I don't No, I think she's in a situation that I, I think one of the things that is really interesting is that it's Mrs. Davenport and not Ms. Davenport. And I think possibly it's because the captain is older, but in giving her Mrs. title means that she's got some sort of history and backstory that we don't, we don't get to see and we don't know. And I don't know that I can necessarily relate to her as much as someone who doesn't have that sort of history I don't know I'm not sure if I'm making sense but I'm gonna say I don't think so <laughs> compared to to Jane who is I think less wizened, I guess would be the the word and newer maybe to the world and not as experienced is there an intimacy between Davenport and me as a watcher, a viewer. I would say no, because we have no solo time necessarily with her. The only time alone that we have is when she's closing the window and looking up at the portrait of the uh, Mrs. Burley. And that yeah, there's there's nothing there. So I would say no. Uh, her character and moral aptitude mmm her sarcasm Well, I'm a sarcastic person so this might seem hypocritical the her sarcasm is a bit off-putting especially given the whole situation and she is less patient with the children so her character is not as positive I think there's too much of the captain bleeding into that character which I guess is just what it is you're watching the captain be Davenport rather than just Davenport right there I think she's aware of her responsibility her truthfulness I suppose and we don't get any religion of course faithfulness there's a tension there between her faithfulness to the children and her faithfulness to Lord Burley and I think that's lacking because I think Jane would always choose Adele over Edward and she does often because she protects Adele because she sees herself in Adele. Childhood scenes, we don't get them, so again, we don't know that background, just that she's Mrs. and not Ms. Relationships with those around her are pretty poor, I would say. Contentious with Templeton. She seems to try to be, I don't know, she dotes more on Beatrice, I think, than she does Henry, but Henry just seems like a little jerk, so I guess that makes sense. But just, it's cold. All the relationships are really cold. The relationship between quote-unquote Jane and quote-unquote Edward or Davenport and Burley. Gosh, I got to go through all those names in my head before I speak them all the time. The love is not believable, especially when I watched Persistence of Visions* the first go. And that was the first episode that I had watched. And all of a sudden he grabs her and kisses her. I'm like, wow, this is this has moved really quickly. But there really is not much lead up to that. So I would say that No conflict that tears them apart doesn't exist like I guess except for the boffins and then can this adaptation stand alone or must you have read Jane Eyre to appreciate the work yeah I think you can stand alone I think it's more about the Star Trek right and then just just plop her into that hollow novel I think it works you can watch this without necessarily knowing especially since it's a mashup of Henry James and Charlotte Bronte so I think it's fine and I don't know that you'll really even think about Jane Eyre when watching it but maybe it'll be like oh I appreciate Star Trek because it made a reference to Jane Eyre so it's almost like the opposite of that. It's definitely not the law of Jane. I don't even I would say it doesn't even have the spirit of Jane just because Davenport is a bit more brusque than I'm used to and not as likable. And I don't know. She doesn't have as much heart, I think, that I'm I'm used to and expect from Jane Eyre. Oh, I think that's it. Again, I really highly recommend episode three of Gimme That Star Trek. I think that that is really worthwhile. And you've got a Jane Eyre expert on there. So I am merely the second Jane Eyre expert on the Fire and Water podcast network. I defer to Jose okay well I am going to take a break when I return I'm going to be looking at and this is going to take a little bit more time and cogitation I'm going to be looking at the 1943 film I Walked With a Zombie and yes yes before you say anything I know that Spock is a Vulcan
4: space The Final Frontier. These are the recordings of the podcast Gimme That Star Trek. Its ongoing mission. To explore all of Star Trek. To seek out new guests and new opinions. To boldly go where many have gone before.
0: Gimme That Star Trek. A new episode every month only at FireAndWaterPodcast.com and on iTunes.
4: out of their West Indian Island comes a tale of terror and voodoo, of witchcraft and zombies, and all the weird black magic that the white man seldom sees. It is a tale of brother against brother, and their love for a woman who lived with the dead. And it is also the tale of a young nurse, who never believed such things could happen.
0: Tell me that the voodoo priest could cure Mrs. Holland. Better doctors. Dambala, this woman is ill.
4: This is the ceremony of voodoo death. A ceremony that seeks the life of the woman who lives forever, who walks with the dead.
3: Welcome back. Now, this second half is a bit more involved. I had to do a bit more research just in terms of the film itself, as well as some academic research into the time and some of the the racial commentary that was going on as well. So I'm going to be looking at I Walked with a Zombie from 1943. This was released on April 30th, 1943, and it opened or its premiere was in New York on the 21st of April of that year. RKO Radio Pictures, Inc. was the production company. It's black and white. It is 68 to 69 minutes, which I found interesting. In feet, it is 6,171 feet long. It stars James Ellison as Wesley Rand. Francis D. as Betsy Connell, Tom Conway as Paul Holland, Edith Barrett as Mrs. Rand, James Bell as Dr. Maxwell, Christine Gordon as Jessica Holland, Teresa Harris as Alma, Sir Lancelot as the Calypso singer, Darby Jones as Cara Four, Jenny Legon as the dancer some history and this is coming from AFI which has been a great resource to use for some of these old films whether I can find them to watch or not but actress Teresa Harris's first name is misspelled t-e-r-e-s-a in the on-screen cast credits even though it's t-h-e-r-e-s-a like my mother the film opens with Betsy's voiceover narration I walked with a zombie it all began in such an ordinary way According to an October 21, 1942 Hollywood Reporter News item, Anna Lee was initially slated to play Betsy, but was forced to withdraw because of a previous commitment. Although RKO Production Records added Rita Cristiani to the cast, her appearance in the released film has not been confirmed. A mid-November 1942, Hollywood Reporter News item noted that the studio was forced to eliminate five days of location shooting because of proposed gas rationing. According to a February 1943 news item, because of the success of Cat People, the Val Luton production released just prior to this film, I Walked With a Zombie was to be rented not on a flat rate, which was the custom for low-budget B films, but on a percentage of the box office, as was the practice with higher-budgeted A films. Which is interesting, especially when we get into the fact that making a B film, you have a bit more creative leeway. So that is interesting. I Walked With the Zombie served as the inspiration for the 2001 RKO Production Ritual, directed by Avi Nesher and starring Jennifer Grey, Craig Sheffer, and Daniel LePayne. This loose remake, which credits Wallace's story and the side Mac Ray screenplay, is also known as Tales from the Crypt Presents revelation. The genre is considered horror and the subgenre is considered psychological. Some subjects that it deals with the Caribbean, infidelity, nurses, romantic rivalry, voodoo and zombies. But some minor subjects are Canadians, which I found amusing, curses, drunkenness, half-brothers, Inquests, mothers and sons, physicians, plantation, superstition, and women priests. And it's almost as if subjects could be considered themes in this sense. And Canadians is because Betsy's from Canada, but it just is interesting that's considered a theme. And then finally, I found two newspaper. I shouldn't say that two clippings or two articles yes, I'll combine that, two clippings of articles from that time period that talked about these films. So the first one comes from the Film Daily, and this was published, or this article was published on March 17th, 1943. This shocker, lacking in action will require a lot of plugging. Even devotees of horror films who are The ideal audience for this exhibit will find it tough to extract more than a passing amount of entertainment from I Walked with a Zombie. The production, which bears the banner of Val Luton, is an utterly fantastic affair in which not very much happens, nor much that is of any great interest. There's plenty of gabbing, but not much action to speak of. The chief performers are James Ellison, Francis D., and Tom Conway. Miss D. is a Canadian nurse who goes to a West Indies Island to look after the zombie wife of Conway, a wealthy sugar planter. Ellison is Conway's half-brother in love with the zombie, Christine Gordon. Touched by the tragic situation, Miss D., in the belief the patient is a mental case, tries everything in her power to bring the woman back to normalness. Even voodoo mumbo-jumbo is called into service by Miss D. before it is learned that her patient is a zombie. It seems that Ellison's ma, Edith Barrett, got the gal into that unhappy state to prevent her from breaking up the family. The ending has Ellison killing the zombie and, well, that's, <laughs> we'll get to that. The ending has Ellison killing the zombie and walking to his death in the sea with her in his arms. Jack Turner's direction is a bit too static for this kind of thing. The director does, however, help to build up the eeriness of the film and to create a certain feeling of suspense. Kurt SideMac and Ardwell Ray pounded out the screenplay from a yarn by Inez Wallace. J. Roy Hunt's photography is in the proper mood. The acting is adequate unto the purpose, with Conway easily the best of the players. And then it goes into the cast and credits. And then finally, (laughs) some of these are hard to read, this comes from Variety, which was published, or this particular one was published on March 17th, 1943. Another in the horror cycle, I Walked With a Zombie, fails to measure up to the horrific title. Film contains some terrifying passages, but is overcrowded with trite dialogue and ponderous setting. It's suited for lower half duels and absence of box office. Names doesn't help. Scriptors Carl Sidmack and Ardell Ray haven't particularly improved the Inez Walls original, which hinges on the premise that West Indies voodoo priests actually can produce a zombie, a live person unable to speak, hear, or feel. Weird Yarn has two half-brothers competing for the love of a girl married to one of the pair and their mother, employing voodooism to turn the girl into a robot like existence climax where one of the brothers walks into the ocean with the girl and both are drowned in an overdone bed that's not completely true there with few exceptions cast walks through the picture almost as dazed as the zombies I would agree in in one instance on that James Ellison makes a loud but totally ineffective bad brother his love affair with his brother's wife starts the whole cycle of strange mishaps Francis D as a comely nurse tries to make sense in the inanimate proceedings. Tom Conway is terrifically British as a righteous brother but inexcus righteous yeah right but inexcusably dull most of the time. Edith Barrett is halfway acceptable as a mother of the two brothers while Teresa misspelled Harris is impressive as a personable servant. others so so interesting. So clearly <laughs> the people or the reviewers as it were, did not care for this. Let me give you some background. Well, I guess I've been talking, I guess, so much or around the plot. Let me give the plot and then I'll do some historical background. I want to talk about the director and about the history of it and then some racial stuff. And then I'll get into more specifics of what I saw in the film as well. I walked with a zombie. (laughs) Does seem an odd thing to say.
0: Had anyone said that to me a year ago, I'm not at all sure I would have known what a zombie was. I might have had some notion that they were strange and frightening, even a little funny. It all began in such an ordinary way. You're single? Yes.
2: Where have you trained?
0: Memorial Hospital here in Ottawa.
2: Now, this last question's a little irregular, Miss Colonel. I really don't know quite how to begin. Do you believe in
3: witchcraft?
0: They didn't teach it at Memorial Hospital, but I had no suspicions about the directress of training.
3: Okay, so here's a synopsis. Betsy Connell, a Canadian nurse, recounts the curious circumstances under which she, quote, walked with a zombie, end quote. Hired to care for Jessica Holland, the wife of Paul Holland, the owner of a sugar plantation in the Caribbean, Betsy sails from Canada to Antigua, where she is met by Paul and escorted to the island of St. Sebastian. As they sail to their destination, Betsy's dreams of island beauty are shattered by Paul, who cautions her that the beauty surrounding them masks death and decay. At the St. Sebastian dock, Betsy met by a carriage from fort holland whose driver tells her the story of how the hollands brought the slaves to the island and explains that the statue of T misery in the hollands courtyard comes from the masthead of a slave ship at dinner that night betsy is joined by wesley rand paul's half-brother who informs her that their mother mrs rand runs the village dispensary while getting ready for bed, Betsy hears a woman's sobs coming from across the courtyard and goes to investigate. Following the sobs to a tower stairwell, Betsy begins to ascend the stairs when she is cornered by the cataleptic figure of Jessica Holland. After Betsy screams for help, Paul comes to the tower and puts Jessica to bed. The next morning, Paul upbraids Betsy for her childish behavior and warns her not to heed the island superstitions. Betsy then meets Jessica's physician, Dr. Maxwell, who explains that his patient's zombie-like condition is caused by an incurable tropical fever. On Betsy's day off, Wesley accompanies her to the village, and while he drinks himself into a stupor, a Calypso singer performs a song about Paul and Wesley's rivalry for Jessica's love. After Wesley passes out, Mrs. Rand comes to the table and arranges to have him taken back to Fort Holland. That night, the distant drums of a voodoo ritual underscore the harsh words exchanged by Paul and Wesley over dinner. Later, Betsy is drawn to the sound of Paul playing the piano. When he sees her approach, Paul apologizes for bringing her to the island and admits to driving his wife mad. After their discussion, Betsy realizes that she has fallen in love with Paul, of course, and determines to make him happy by curing Jessica. Betsy administers insulin shock to Jessica, and when the treatment fails, Paul comforts her, prompting Wesley to accuse him of falling in love with his wife's nurse. When Alma, Jessica's maid, suggests that the voodoo priest might be able to cure Jessica, Betsy questions Mrs. Rand about the power of voodoo, but the older woman advises her against it. Ignoring Mrs. Rand, Betsy decides to take her patient to the voodoo priest, and Alma draws her a map to the home front. In the sand, might I add. That night, Betsy leads Jessica through billowing fields of cane, past animal sacrifices, and to the crossroads guarded by the towering zombie-like figure of Kare 4, the voodoo god. Finally reaching the village, Betsy enters a shack to consult with the voodoo priest. Inside, she is astounded to discover that the priest is none other than Mrs. Rant. After explaining that she uses voodoo to convince the natives to accept standard medical practices, Mrs. Rant tells Betsy that Jessica can never be cured, and Betsy takes her charge back to the house. The natives, inflamed by the presence of Jessica, intensify their rituals, intent upon drawing her back to the home fort. As the native drums pound, Paul admits that he is fearful of demeaning and abusing Betsy as he did Jessica, and asks her to return to Canada. That night, Betsy is awakened by the looming shadow of Carrefour, and she runs to Paul's room for help. Mrs. Rand then appears and orders Carrefour to leave the Holland complex. The next day, Maxwell comes with the bad news that the Native unrest has sparked an inquest into Jessica's illness. Mrs. Rand responds that Jessica is not sick, but a zombie, a member of the living dead. Mrs. Rand explains that when she discovered that Jessica was planning to run away with Wesley, she put a curse on her, turning her into a zombie. Maxwell refuses to accept her explanation, however, and insists that Jessica is a victim of tropical fever. That night, the drums beat ominously as Jessica shuffles from the house to the front gates. Wesley, obsessed with freeing Jessica from her zombie-like state, opens the gates, pulls an arrow from the Statue of Tea Misery, and follows her. Compelled to mimic the hand of a voodoo worshiper stabbing a doll with a pin, Wesley thrusts the arrow into Jessica and carries her into the sea as Carrefour follows, staring blindly into the night. Later, the natives discover the bodies of Jessica and Wesley floating in the surf and carry them back to Fort Holland, where Paul comforts Betsy. Okay, as you can probably tell from that synopsis, we don't have zombies in this film in the sense of walking dead kind of zombies that are feeding on flesh. But if you consider a zombie or a definition of a zombie as somebody who is or something because it could be potentially an animal depending on what sort of <laughs> you know if you're a fan of Resident Evil or not and you've got those dogs running around but a zombie is being someone who is physically living but emotionally dead then we certainly in this film have zombies and I think that that definition transcends all types of media that we see zombies okay so as we've seen the people the critics didn't seem to care for that too much And I wonder if it's a sign of the times. I'm going to read several sections from an academic article that I found from JSTOR, which is a a great source for journal articles and the like. And this is called The Cinema of Difference, Jacques Turner, Race, and I Walked with a Zombie from 1943 by Gwenda Young. So often, I mean, if I say quote, it's basically that I'm going to be talking a lot about that. So just to give some background into where we are here. So I do want to talk about race in in the film here, because we obviously that's a big point here of we have whites versus blacks, and their belief systems and how they are either working together or working against one another. And I will then something that's not on the paper, of course, discuss how women are treated because that is I think rather interesting. So just to look at race in film historically and where this was coming in at 1943, which I found very interesting. From the silent era until the 1940s, major black characters were largely absent from the screens. Those black characters that did emerge were usually consigned in the margins of the film featuring as faithful or comic servants. For example, the maids featuring in the West and Harlow film of the 1930s. Villains from D.W. Griffith on, or dimwitted Toms and Coons. We can also think about, the, and this is just thinking further about this, that Hollywood, I think, attempted to make black characters safer for white audiences more palatable, potentially, if I were to use that word. And if you think about some of the the black characters in Gone with the Wind, for instance. So you have the maid or the mammy character. So people, generally, I think black characters, and I guess I could just say black uh, actors, were pigeonholed into certain roles, and those roles were often caricatures and not really respectful. So I think the overriding question in this article is... Potentially, or one of the questions would be, is this film respectful of black actors, black history, and black characters and roles and things like that? So in 1942, uh, leading up to this film, Roosevelt's government, of course, begins introducing laws aimed at integrating society. Now, after the war in the liberal films that are made, such as Home of the Brave, or To Kill a Mockingbird, or Edge of the City. There's going to be a stress on the need for integration. We're going to try to see that manifested in those films. But... Uh, The blacks in these films are really no different from middle class whites. And so the films that you see at that point in time are really pleading the case for black inclusion into white society, not a mixture of the both. So another theme would be that uh, black characters and black people in history, they're asked to defer to the other race and they are asked to make sacrifices and it's not a meeting in the middle. And so we're seeing that in films as well. So do we see that in I Walked With a Zombie? The liberal films, another quote, the liberal films of the 40s and 50s did have an important role in changing people's attitudes to race in American society, but their stress on integration and sameness led to a reluctance to deal with the issue of difference. Despite the liberal films attempt to integrate blacks into mainstream society, the fact remained that black culture in American society was radically different and apart from white culture. And that's where we get into this idea of celebrating difference. Hollywood films in this era could not deal with the Negro problem. Due to the combined pressures from box office, audience, and black groups, filmmakers either wrote blacks out of films, integrated them into white discourse, or reduced them to the status of exotic, powerless others. It is against this socio-historical and cinematic background that Turner's I Walked With a Zombie can be read as a text which, on some levels, challenges the dominant representation of blacks and black discourse in American cinema and society. society. So here's some background on the director himself, again coming from this article here. The career of Jack Turner represents one of the most interesting of all B-movie directors. Born in France in 1904, he was the son of the famed French director Maurice Turner, who had worked in American cinema during the 1910s and 1920s before returning to France to continue his career. Maurice Turner had been a very influential director, largely credited with introducing a high level of pictorial sophistication, evocative lighting and elaborate mise-en-scene into American films. Jacques Turner was undoubtedly influenced by his father's cinematic style and having served as his assistant and editor on a number of films in France he moved to America in 1935 where he embarked on a career as a director initially of second units and shorts and later of B features. It was while working on the second unit of the MGM production of A Tale of Two Cities with Jack Conway, the director, that Turner met producer Val Luton. It was Luton who, in 1941, requested Turner as director for the first in his series of B budget horror films for RKO, which is Cat People, which I mentioned before that the success of Cat People allowed some freedom with I Walked with a Zombie. The result, of course, Cat People, helped revitalize the horror genre. In its exploration of the nature of fear and of sexuality, an exploration achieved largely through the combined use of evocative low-key lighting, symbolism-laden sets, and clever editing, the film proved to be a critical and commercial hit. It marked the beginning of a rich collaboration between Turner and Luton, a partnership that would result in two more horror films. The second was, of course, I Walked With a Zombie, a film made on a small budget and loosely based on an American weekly article. written by Inez Wallace, as we've heard mentioned in some of those critiques. Wallace's article was a non fiction meditation on the existence of zombies. Luton Turner and their writers Kurt Sidmack and Ardwell Ray decided to deviate from the source and set about producing a film based on Charlotte Bronte's Jane Eyre, transplanted to the West Indies, which isn't too much of a stretch given Bertha's background. In its exploration of the notion of difference and in its complexity of narration, the film develops the themes already established by cat people and anticipates. Jean Rice's novel Wide Sargasso Sea which comes out in 66. Even though producing B-movies obviously offered a great deal of restrictions in the areas of budget and casting the fact that these films were only ever meant as fillers meant that Turner and Luton also enjoyed an unusual degree of creative freedom. All who worked on the Luton-produced horror films were liberals, many of them European émigrés, and this liberalism manifested itself in all the films. Even though the films conform to some of the conventions of their genre, which is horror, of course, they also radically subvert the genre and, in the process, offer comments on the relationships between cinema and American society in the 1940s. In a similar way, I Walked With the Zombie offers us insights into another world, a world where non-rational discourse is privileged, and a world where there is a belief that there are forces at work in the world that no one can hope to understand. The film's examination of the relationship between blacks and whites has clear parallels with contemporary debates about the race issue in 1940s America one could argue that I walked with a zombie is one of the first Hollywood films to recognize and celebrate and that's the key word there celebrate black difference What makes I Walked With a Zombie a radical film for its time is its exploration of the idea of resistance. This resistance is expressed in many forms, from the Blacks' refusal to give up the practice of the religion, to the singing of the song by the Calypso singer, Sir Lancelot. The Blacks may be socially inferior, most of them are in fact maids and servants, but in no way are they portrayed as morally or intellectually inferior. I Walked With a Zombie's subversion of white discourse, its emphasis on the vast differences between the races, anticipates new black cinema 40 years later. In the films of Spike Lee difference, skin color, culture, beliefs are foregrounded. As American society has become more radically divided, there has been a turning away from the idea of integration towards an embracing of the ideology of separation. I Walked With a Zombie had already shown how impossible was the dream of integration. It's always predicated on the need for compromise, usually on the part of the minority. Although Turner's film was just a B-movie, as they say, this B-movie was recognized by the OWI as potentially dangerous to the integrationist policy, then being stressed by the government and war office. Ulrich Bell of the OWI objected to the film. He had requested to see the script before production, but RKO had stalled him in 1941. He recognized the power of this B-movie and criticized the way it drew a sharp line between whites and blacks. Despite Bell's criticisms and his attempt to censor the film, I Walked With a Zombie escaped uncut. So talking about these differences, one of the main differences I would say would, of course, be within the religion the religious aspects and the religious themes of this movie. So Christianity, which I would say is pretty shallow, only spoken of in terms of Mr. Rand being the father, Mr. Rand being a missionary, Mrs. Rand being a missionary's wife, and, and she carrying on a, a Christian message to a certain extent. And then the voodoo, I think, is, is more primarily seen throughout. I think the voodoo is really rich throughout this film. Still coming from this paper here. Uh, Indeed, the film offers a very complex representation of religion and Voodoo, one which is, in most aspects, accurate and respectful. Turner and Luton present an unsensationalist analysis of Voodoo as a religion rather than mere superstition. As Siegel's study of Luton points out, Luton and his collaborators conducted exhaustive research into the area, hiring voodoo experts as consultants. I did find it interesting in regards to Vudan here is that it's called the most democratic of all world religions and that it's just tolerant of everything. It has no set texts and it almost it incorporates many different beliefs and deities and rituals from others. So I think it is it's distinct from other religions and in particular Christianity because with Christianity the idea is – Potentially to proselytize others, right? And evangelize others and go out into the world and, and give them the message. And voodoo, I think almost, or voodon, it's like they sit there and they incorporate everything and they're welcoming to all but they're not trying to push their religion off on any other so it seems like a a pretty respectful religion not to say that Christianity isn't respectful but in that sense it almost makes it seem like Christianity is pushy and Vudan is is not and, and sits there and in its stillness I think it has power and acceptance. There is a lot of subverting the white narrative, subverting white discourse, and a great part of this comes from the film's attitude towards voodoo and zombies because there's there's no attempt to explain away in sensationalist terms again, right, the superstitions and the beliefs of the people. And I think this becomes very clear with mrs rand's explanation of what she you know quote-unquote did to jessica and i think also with this ambiguous ending of who actually killed jessica how did she actually die that it it pulls away almost the power of the whites and doesn't necessarily give it to the blacks in the film but has equal power for both of them because there is that ambiguity of what is actually going on and who was doing what. And because you don't know, that power is equally balanced. So you have almost, you know, the voodoo is equal, and and the Christian perspective is equal, and then the black narrative viewpoint and the white narrative and viewpoint is equal. And no one had to sacrifice in order to get that, which is what uh, integration potentially is doing, that there might be a balance of power, but the blacks would have to give more of that power to the whites. So just finishing up, and now just talking about zombieism, and the fact that it was—it's been a it has been around for a while, because cultural anthropologists have pointed out that beliefs in zombies or the living dead is inextricably linked with slavery, and this film almost has the backbone of slavery because that's how the the Hollands were able to, or the Hollands and the Rands were able to build up this plantation here. To be reduced to a physically living yet emotionally dead slave was what the colonized feared most. Although the colonized slave might be politically and socially powerless, he always had a certain amount of free will as well as a spiritual and emotional existence that was separate from white society. To be denied this, this instrument of resistance would be to render the slave spiritually as well as socially powerless, i.e. a zombie. The irony, of course, is that a white woman is the zombie. And that she was zombified by her mother-in-law, also a white woman, due to a social or familial transgression. But you could also see that some of Paul Holland's emotional disengagement and his inability to love has also turned him into a zombie. And then at the very end, with Wesley, you have him almost (laughs) zombily walking into the ocean. So almost the only person and oh my gosh, if I think about it, Mrs. Rand, the thing that honestly did annoy me a bit about that is her and you'll hear it is her explanation of how what she did to Jessica and how she did it, but it's no affect whatsoever. So it's almost as if the only person who's not a zombie is the transplant from Canada, Betsy herself, Jane Eyre standing. As John Paul Sartre pointed out in his Wretched of the Earth, in the colonial discourse, the colonizer regards the colonized as zombies, whereas in reality, it is he who has turned himself into a zombie, an emotionally dead being. So in a sense, (laughs) the fear of becoming a zombie, I think, is greater than the fear of zombies themselves, which is something that I think we see a lot in this film so again i wish i could thank her in person but i do you know well it'd be hard you'd have to get a j store I, I don't know i guess it might be easy to get maybe if you're in the academic place but this was the cinema of difference Jacques turner race and i walked with a zombie by gwenda young and i thought there was a lot of interesting stuff there especially you know the background with hollywood and race and where it was coming into that and then this Yeah, so I think if I were to summarize all those points there, it's certainly subverting the genre. It's adding social as uh, I guess I could say, well, social commentary, political in terms of we are coming at a time when there are some plans of integrating in Roosevelt's United States. And you're also celebrating differences and not one of the people in this film is sacrificing power or deferring to the other there is an equal and yes i do know that there are of course the the colonized i guess we could say are in the servant capacity but i think that doesn't speak as powerfully as other things that are going on that celebrate the the difference and show the power that the the black community members have on this island okay So now I'm going to get into just some thoughts on this as I went through and watched it. The beginning was certainly interesting especially because Betsy does not question her interviewer when he asks if she believes in witchcraft. She just laughs and makes a sarcastic remark but upon watching the whole film and then rewatching that scene again after I had watched it I do suppose this was a way for Paul to make sure that she wasn't going to be easily spooked but I think it almost presages what she later does with Jessica because even though she laughs it off she doesn't answer yes or no and she believes in it enough to help Jessica or to attempt it with Jessica or I guess you could argue she loves Paul enough to try anything to help save his wife. There's suspense and foreboding almost immediately when she thinks the boat ride to St. Sebastian is beautiful and then Paul takes everything she sees and adds death or something macabre to it, which was interesting.
0: It seemed only a few days before I met Mr. Holland in Antigua. We boarded the boat for St. Sebastian. It was all just as I'd imagined it. I looked at those great glowing stars. I felt the warm wind on my cheek. I breathed deep, and every bit of me inside myself said,
4: how beautiful. It's not beautiful.
0: You read my thoughts, Mr. Holland.
4: It's easy enough to read the thoughts of a newcomer. Everything seems beautiful because you don't understand. Those flying fish, they're not leaping for joy. They're jumping in terror. Bigger fish want to eat them. That luminous water, it takes its gleam from millions of tiny dead bodies, the glitter of putrescence. There's no beauty here, only death and decay.
0: You can't really believe that.
4: Everything good dies here, even the stars.
0: Strange to have him break in on my thoughts that way. It was cruelty and hardness in his voice, and yet something about him I liked—something clean and honest—but hurt, badly hurt.
3: I did wonder why Paul doesn't take her to Fort Holland. He met her; he was on the boat with her. But then, he has one of his manservants take her by carriage though it does give us some exposition about how the slaves came to Saint Sebastian and what sort of the status quo is but Betsy I I would say is pretty tone deaf here because the driver is saying that they were brought to Saint Sebastian in chains at the bottom of a boat and she says quote at least they brought you somewhere pretty and he says if you say so miss if you say so so he doesn't buy into that obviously We find out pretty quickly that Mr. Rand, the second husband, father of Wesley, was a missionary. So that, even though that's dropped, I think, only twice, we do get a sense, I think, it's told us enough times and in pretty good placement that we get a sense of why it's being told to us and what the significance of it would be. I guess in both senses, potentially. Because why Mrs. Rand would be here, and then later on, why Mrs. Rand has to use the tactics she does. I was gonna say stoop. She somewhat does stoop because she is appropriating something else, somebody else's beliefs and rituals. Which I suppose, again, they'd be tolerant of because they, you know, take and, and incorporate different items. But the way she does it is almost as a manipulation in order to get them to, to take medicine and things like that. But I'll, I'll get to that. Wesley calls Paul Byronic which I thought was ironic (laughs) not to rhyme Jessica aka Bertha is she's right out in the open right I mean the entire idea of Jane Eyre I shouldn't say the entire thing but for the most part you have Bertha just not anywhere around there there's something going on but you don't know but here Jessica's out there you know you don't know exactly what has happened You see the tension between the brothers but there's there are less lies I think about the goings-on. There is a an interesting discussion about beauty between Paul and Betsy and Betsy believes herself pretty but she's not sure about charming and then Paul just says something pretty mean about yeah well that's good don't think about yourself as being charming. The singer that we have that again you know symbolic of resistance where he keeps he plays right in front of Wesley this history of Jessica Wesley and Paul knowing that he's there even though he says he doesn't but then later on he comes back and finishes the song and it's interesting because Betsy lies about that song that they hear at the cafe and she at first shushes him and then later on says you know oh I didn't want to hear it I didn't know it would upset you and she should hear it, number one, because I think it will give her an idea of what to look out for and what the situation is. It also helps us as the the viewers. But I don't know. <laughs> is that bad writing or that was just a bad Betsy of trying to lie because clearly she was interested and then she feigns like, oh, I didn't know. She feigns innocence. Good heavens. How long has Betsy been on St. Sebastian by the time she meets the mother? She speaks as though it's been weeks. So that's something that I can't really tell. It's a short film an hour and 10 minutes or so and it's difficult to get a sense of timeline and how long things are going on which is kind of fine for this but not in the sense of uh, the quote-unquote love affair between Betsy and Paul. It was a very awkward dinner scene and still Betsy persists in finding out a bit more and questioning Paul at that piano scene. I mean, something bad happens and you're kicked out of the room before you find out. But hey, love makes you push forward. It's also interesting how far a little truth can go because Paul begins the story and then ends it by saying, you don't know how Jessica was. And we're not going to bring it up again. And that seems sufficient for everything. And it is a bit more than I think Edward would give us, maybe. I guess it's balanced because Edward told us his history with Bertha and how she became a nasty woman. But that kind of was that. You don't know, like, what was the resolution? But here we know what the resolution is. And we don't know the details of who Jessica was. I don't buy the love between Betsy and Paul at all. In the beginning, at least, I feel like we're just being told and not shown by a couple different people. The relationship between the brothers, I think, is just way more compelling, even though it is so contentious. Uh, one of my questions is, does Paul actually love? I, well, I said still love Jessica. I Does he love her? That's something I didn't necessarily... Because he has that whole speech about basically how he destroyed her and he destroyed that love and almost I guess he destroys nice things isn't that a trope there for potentially a Byronic person but I don't know that he if he ever loved her does he still love her because Betsy is convinced that he doesn't and because she loves him she's got to save Jessica for him I don't know because he does or the performance of the actor makes it seem like he doesn't he he doesn't care much about anything. He is just kind of brooding and going along with his business. Alma draws that map. I would have gotten lost, especially through all those corn cornfields, and I do wonder why Alma couldn't have led Betsy to the Horn Fort. AKA the voodoo temple. I also feel like Jessica should have worn a sensible outfit, but because she couldn't dress herself, I feel like someone should have dressed Jessica in a sensible outfit for their trek to the temple. And, yeah, there certainly is a what-the-moment with Mrs. Rand at the temple. So we find out that she, in fact, while she carries on the missionary life, she appropriates voodoo in order to, as I say, manipulate the people, maybe for their own good. An example she gave was boil drinking water and say, you know, the god will, if you do this, the god will detoxify the water or something like that. So maybe the wrong thing but for right reasons because she's trying to protect people but then she's see that blending now of what's going on and now the lines are really starting to get blurred and I think it was good that we had this conversation because once she tells us later about what happened to Jessica in her own words it makes more sense so I think the director as well as the screenwriting team do a good job of leading us to when we come upon these conclusions oh that makes sense because we had all these hints leading up to it the love scene as i call it after the temple is a bit more believable especially since paul is telling her to leave here's a clip i want you out of it i want you
4: to go back to canada betsy why because of jessica because of myself because i don't want you to be made miserable and unhappy
0: but i want to stay
4: i'm afraid it's not what you want I want you back in Canada.
0: Naturally, as my employer, you have the right to
4: dismiss... Don't, Betsy. You know that isn't what I mean. You remember the first night I saw you? You were looking at the sea. You were enchanted. But I felt I had to destroy that enchantment. Make you see ugliness and cruelty.
0: You were trying to warn me.
4: No. I was trying to hurt you. It was the same way with Jessica. I had to hurt her. Everything she did or said made me lash out at her. That's why I want you to go. You see, Betsy, since you've been here, I've seen how fine and sweet things can be between a man and a woman. How love can be calm and good. I'd rather not have that sort of love than have it and destroy it.
0: You want me to leave. you?
4: That's why I want you to go. It's no good for you to stay so long as I have this fear of myself.
3: Not often, not often do we see someone, well, I shouldn't say that. I've read enough romance novels to know that someone does probably push somebody away in order to protect him or her. But I will say that this is something that Mr. Rochester definitely did not do because he, in fact, tried to hold Jane closer for his own good and did not push her away mama rand becomes what she initially touted against as we see using voodoo to take vengeance upon jessica because jessica was going to run away with wes and this scene here is man mama rand just speaks so calmly about what has happened almost wearily so
5: if you'll be good enough to take me to the commissioner doctor i think there'll be no need of an investigation but why mrs rand
2: what could you have to tell him
5: jessica is not insane Please take me to the commissioner. I can explain the whole thing to him.
4: Mother, what are you trying to say?
5: She is dead.
2: Oh, Mrs. Rand.
5: She is dead. Living and dead.
2: Mrs. Rand, you're not seriously trying to tell me that my patient is a zombie.
5: I'm not mad. It's true. I did it. Mother. Wesley, let me explain. I wanted to so often. Now I have to. Betsy, tell them about the Humfort. Tell them what you saw there.
0: You must, Betsy. They'll have to believe you. Well, Mrs. Rand was at the home fort, but there's nothing wrong with that. She's gone there for years, trying to take care of those people, to help them.
2: I think I understand. I've often talked a little voodoo to get medicine down a patient's throat.
5: But it was more than that, Doctor. I entered into their ceremonies. I pretended I was possessed by their gods. But what I did to Jessica was when she wanted to go away with Wesley. That night, I went to the home fort. I kept seeing her face smiling because she was beautiful enough to take my family in her hands and tear it apart. The drums, the chanting, the lights. I heard a voice speaking in the sudden silence. My voice. I was speaking to the Hungan. I was possessed. I told him the woman at Fort Holland was evil and asked him to make her a zombie. Then what happened? I hated myself. On the way home, I said over and over again, there were no such people. and no strange drugs. There was no such thing as a zombie. You were right. I said it and I made myself believe it. But when I got here, Jessica was raging with fever.
2: She was raging with fever. A fever with a long Latin name and a bad reputation for its after effects. Usually some form of insanity. Dr. Maxwell is right, Mother. You were tricked by your own imagination, Mrs. Rand.
5: I'm not an imaginative or fanciful woman, doctor.
2: As I understand it, in order to turn a person into a zombie, whether by poison or hocus-pocus, you must first kill that person. Is that right? Yes. She was feverish. She was delirious. But I don't remember her dying or even being in a state resembling death. No coma, nothing. I'm afraid you are an imaginative woman, Mrs. Rand.
3: That was, like I said, I think what I I did not agree with, especially since she said at one point Jessica took my family in her hands and destroyed it or broke it apart. And I feel like, man, with such a powerful line as that, which is a bit dramatic, I'll talk about that later on, man, have some fire in you. But then as I think about that paper that I read, Mama Rand is a zombie, I think. The constant beat which happens for... It might be an exaggeration to say half the film, but at least a quarter of the film just adds to the suspense and it, it almost feels like it gets more powerful as it goes along. But it's just because it's been happening so long and you're like, what's going to happen It's, it's really good. Wes ends up wanting to euthanize Jess and even uses Betsy's love for Paul to try to convince her to do it, that you have to get rid of her to be with Paul is something that he basically says. But Betsy, very much like a Jane Eyre stand in takes her Hippocratic oath seriously and says, no, like, why would you even ask that of me? So then we get to the ambiguity of the end that Jessica does. (laughs) I put in my notes, what killed Betsy? That is incorrect. Jessica dies. But we don't see, what we see is the voodoo ritual happening at the home fort. And they have a doll of Jessica dressed in white and a needle is stabbed through her. And we saw Jessica, the human being or the zombie, walking out of Fort Holland and just walk and then Wesley follows after her, pulls out an arrow shaft from Team Misery, and the next thing you see, because you don't see him, is like removing the arrow, but that was happening simultaneously as the pin. So there's this ambiguity. One, one – I guess it was the synopsis said that he was compelled to do it, which isn't that funny that if – that the synopsis from afi buys into then the power of the voodoo over the power of i guess the free will of the man that wesley was compelled to because of the voodoo to kill her but it's this this struggle and again that subverting the, the power struggle between could say voodoo and I guess we could just say white and black society of who who was able to do it and you don't know and it's that question I think that creates this really interesting conflict and makes it makes it unsettling but in a really good way and that's why they were upset of course because that's not integration (laughs) that's not our idea of integration our idea would be that Wesley killed Jessica. Not that there's an ambiguity about it. So that I think is really interesting what Turner did here. So Wes couldn't stand to be with or without a dead Jessica and seemingly kills himself. And as he walks in there, which I was a bit baffled at, such as you have Carrefour following them and, and he stops at the edge of the the shore. But Wesley, yeah, in in his arms is Jessica dead and he just goes on in there and dies drowns himself I guess and it's it's almost a baffling scene I would say but I think again there's another example of a zombie right there
4: O Lord God most holy, deliver them from the bitter pains of eternal death. The woman was a wicked woman and she was dead in her own life yea Lord, dead in the selfishness of her spirit And the man followed her. Her steps led him down to evil. Her feet took hold on death. Forgive him, O Lord, who knowest the secret of all hearts. Yea, Lord, pity them who are dead, and give peace and happiness to the living.
3: So the ending calls them both, Wesley, and especially Jess, wicked. Though given some of the things Paul has said of himself and Wes implied, it seems that Paul is abusive and Jess was escaping him for more compassionate love with Wes. And I wonder if she should be blamed for that. And (laughs) it's interesting, of course, that the mother blames the woman and not the sons in a no passion speech an unpassionate speech a non-passionate speech i don't even know what that a passion oh maybe it would be a passionate speech with the a on the 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 prefix we don't know much about jessica this is not like rebecca where we find out that rebecca's been having affairs and uh she's dead And her husband seems like a loving guy, but he gets a bit tense sometimes when Rebecca comes out. But you find out that Rebecca is actually a a pretty crappy human being in terms of her heart and how she treats people. So we don't know that this is true of Jessica. Because the one time that we had the potential of learning about her, Paul clams up because he just tells us that, You don't know who Jessica really was. And even if he had told us, would we have potentially believed him because it was coming from her? But by his own admission, he was not treating her well. And I'm not going to go out and say please commit infidelity but I'm also feeling like maybe this woman deserves some empathy that she was maybe being emotionally abused by her husband and here's this other man who is treating her well does she not maybe have the right her own free will to decide that and, the, you know, the mother, I guess this is also maybe a trope that the mother is going to, of course, side with the sons and blame the woman for the entire thing, even though Wesley should have taken some of that blame as well. But Jessica gets the brunt of everything, and she is the one at the end that is blamed for everything. It's very much an Eve situation in the garden <laughs> that, golly, you know, it's, it's all about the woman, and the woman is causing all the downfalls so if this is a pro-black pro-indigenous cultures and religions film which i think that i i would agree with that paper and i think in seeing this and i think you need to watch it yourself you can't really believe me in in what i'm saying but in examples that i'm given hopefully you can kind of see that it is is it pro-woman <laughs> I don't know that it is. I mean, even when Mrs. Rand is giving her statement of facts, she is called fanciful the entire time. She Her story is not believed. The doctor has a smug smile on his face the entire time and ends it by saying, you know, you're a fanciful woman. And she says, yes, yes, you know, I must be fanciful. And then, of course, we have the Jessica situation, which I just explained moments before. That's not supportive of women. That's supportive of... I don't even know. I guess Oh, it's almost like a slut-shaming culture. Like it's pro-slut-shaming because she, you know, her, Mrs. Rand basically was saying, you know, you whore, you broke up my family and I'm going to take my vengeance out on you. Whereas, whoa, 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 you need to peel back the curtain and see actually what were some of the depths going on in that emotion. So it's certainly not supportive of women, not empathetic of it. And then there are just all these red flags. Betsy is staying with Paul, which I don't really understand. And <laughs> at the end, Mrs. Rand lost a son. And Paul doesn't even comfort his mother at the end when she is weeping over her son. And, and maybe the guilt of what she did to Jessica. Almost a startling scene as well because he looks over at her at one point and then looks back. Which is something I would do carelessly and not kindly to, I don't know, you know, someone that may have been crying and was annoying me and, like, you know, was crying for no purpose. And, like, you know, there's nothing I could do. Like, that was exactly what he was doing. So there's just no support there. So it's one of those situations of, in supporting one group, we, unfortunately, other groups that we kind of stamp down. So I'm super happy that it is, pro-black and and I think for its time really revolutionary to a certain extent but with the the women unfortunately they're getting a bad a bad rap at least Alma I I was just going to think about like the the black women and specifically Alma I think that she's portrayed pretty well and there's a really interesting scene where she wakes up Betsy and she touches her toe so that she doesn't startle her. And she says, like, you know, you touch the the furthest part away from the heart so as not to startle. And so I think there are, like, moments like that. And Betsy, I think, to a certain extent, is pretty respectful towards Alma. So I, those are, like, some positive moments. But Betsy, for the, the carriage driver, that wasn't good. <laughs> but maybe some, with, with Betsy, some woman-to-woman situations are a bit better. But... Anyway, uh, I guess my last question before I do my rubric is whether Jess had to die or is it a kindness in this case? And I will say that it is a kindness. I can see why Wesley wanted to euthanize her. Things didn't seem to be working. But I also think that they wanted to euthanize her because they were feeling uncomfortable and they were having bad feelings. So it was almost to make them feel better. But I give Wesley more of a benefit of the doubt unless Paul because Wesley actually after euthanizing her didn't want to live without her and died with her committed suicide. So I think it is a kindness and because it was Wesley and not Paul because I think Paul would have been there would have been different feelings going into that murder or euthanization I don't think that she had to die, but given the circumstances of everything going on with the voodoo rituals really building up and getting intense, and then the Inquisition that was about to happen on the island, it seemed like the easiest way. Though I wonder what would have happened post-Inquisition and whether someone would have paid the Piper. Okay, so let me now go through my rubric, see what we can do here. Spirit, tone, themes, gothic, etc. I think it does have the tone. Ooh, I think the themes are completely different because it's more racial, racially based than oh well there's social stuff, I guess. And beauty does pay. So maybe, maybe, yes. Okay. But definitely, yeah, definitely the feel of it, the gothic feel and everything, and the tone and some of the themes. Is Jane? or the stand-in relatable, in this case, Betsy Connell? I'd say so. I think that she's probably more relatable than Captain Janeway above. I I think... She comes to this, she's like fresh out of nursing school, it seems. She's accepted this position. She's new to this island. Um, There are some interesting things going around. She's thrown into this strange conflict. I think she acts as anyone would have acted. So I would say yes. Is there an intimacy between Jane and me as a reader? I would say no. I was a bit put off by Betsy in the beginning with how she was reacting to that question about superstition or witchcraft and later on maybe it gets a bit better, but there's only one voiceover. Had there been more consistent voiceover from Betsy, I think I would have said yes, but we only get to the first I walked with a zombie. Seems like such a silly thing to say at the beginning. Let's talk about her character and moral aptitude. Reverence, I don't know anything about her religion. There is religion in here. I think she clearly has... The capacity for spirituality, and she has the she's open to believing. How about that? Because clearly she wants to help Jessica and wants to do it any way she knows how. And in that case, it was the voodoo. Faithfulness, absolutely. To Paul, I think, my gosh, in wanting to help the love of your life's wife, knowing that you'll never be with him, what greater testament is it to faithfulness than that? Her responsibility, I think that is proven in the fact that she said she would not euthanize Jessica to Wesley – She is truthful. There is a moment that Mrs. Rand puts her on the spot about, you know, tell her what you saw at Fort, and She's like, yeah, she was there. So she doesn't lie even though she she wants to. Well, there's that time that she says, I didn't know what that song was. So maybe it's a bit wishy-washy, but I can't tell if that was a weird character thing or poor writing. And then goodness, I think overall, she seems like a decent human being. We don't know anything about her. So no childhood scenes here. There's no Helen. I just realized I forgot to talk about that in the previous one. There was definitely no Helen in Star Trek. But anyways, yeah, there's nothing here. I think we just know where she went to nursing school. So that's unfortunate. We don't know what she's gone through. So again, I think that's why some of that intimacy and maybe relatability is lacking. Her relationships with those around her, with Mrs. Rand, I'd say it's warm, but it's not overly friendly. It's just, I would say that, if I had a relationship with Mrs. Rand, I would call that an acquaintance, maybe slightly stronger than an acquaintance. She has a pretty good friendship with Paul and or well with Wesley and then with Paul. That's a bit If y'all get back to that. And then with Alma, I feel like that's a good relationship. And then she cares for Jessica and the doctor Maxwell, I think. So overall, I think she has good relationships. Relationship with between Betsy and Paul, aka Jane and Edward. I didn't believe the love, especially when she first says she's in love with him. The scene where he pushes her away, that's a bit more believable. I assume that they're together at the end because the very beginning of the film where the credits are rolling, which I know sounds strange, you see two figures walking across the beach and I'm pretty sure that it's probably Betsy and Paul, but I guess it gets more believable, but I almost would rather her not be with him because I wouldn't call... Well, this was the whole debate, wasn't it? You know, is Edward abusive? But I don't think Edward is like Paul in this case. I don't think he wanted to break anyone intentionally, like push them away and and by his own admission say that basically he destroyed his wife. That seems terrible. We know that she basically destroyed herself unknowingly and against her will because it was just a mental illness that she had. So no-ish but I guess it gets kind of believable Uh, the conflict doesn't really tear them apart almost but it wasn't really there and then can this adaptation stand alone or must you have red Jane Eyre to appreciate the work I think it can stand alone I don't think you need to have red Jane Eyre I think just like with maybe Star Trek I think I said that you'll at least appreciate like, oh, look at you know, there's a nod to Jane Eyre, but you don't need to have read Jane Eyre. I think watching this alone, which I recommend again, it's 70 minutes of your time for a pretty interesting film. I think you would agree and spirit of Jane or law of Jane, definitely not law. And I think spirit a little bit, I think it's got that spookiness quality. And then Betsy does have, I think some of the heart of Jane. So yeah, there we go. And that was I Walked With a Zombie. Next up is From the Airwaves. I just have one comment from the website. It comes from Rob. I guess technically he's my boss. He says, it's a testament to this show that I can find all of this interesting despite not having read or seen any of this material. Keep up the good work. And thank you. And I think that's
1: going to do it for Zombie Trek. Thank you for listening. If you'd like to support the Fire & Water Podcast Network, Jane demands it, go to our Patreon page at patreon.com slash fwpodcasts, where you can make a one-time or monthly contribution and unlock various rewards, including getting name-checked on this or any network show of your choice. And perhaps even I, Jane, will bestow upon you the honor of being called Mr. Rochester. Support the network and harvest the good fruits. Be sure to subscribe to the show wherever podcasts can be found. Send questions or comments to to batgirltooracle at gmail.com. Don't question it. And follow at batgirltooracle on Twitter. Thank you, dear listeners, for lending your ears to this show. And until next time, pray do read a book.
2: some